Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Colquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, which we recorded as part of the On Air Festival, we've got a kind of unusually focused conversation about another person entirely. It's Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, along with Meg Remy of U.S. Girls, talking at length about legendary artist Yoko Ono. It's not just out of nowhere, though. Ben Gibbard, who you almost certainly know as the frontman of Death Cab for Cutie, whose impressive catalog has shaped indie rock over the past two decades, recently curated a compilation that pays tribute to Ono's music. He's a man on a mission, which, as you'll hear, is not to reevaluate Yoko Ono's vast catalog, but really to evaluate it in the first place. What people tend to know about Ono's music doesn't reflect the variety of her output, and her narrative as the villain in the Beatles story is kind of ridiculous. To that end, Gibbard gathered a killer lineup to cover Ono's songs for an album called Ocean Child. Musicians featured on the collection include David Byrne with Yola Tengo, Sharon Van Etten, Jay Som, Japanese Breakfast, The Flaming Lips, and of course, Death Cab for Cutie themselves. Check out a bit of their take on Ono's Waiting for the Sunrise. Also included on Ocean Child is U.S. Girls, the musical project of Meg Remy. She's been making music under the name for the past 15 years or so, amassing an impressive collection of records up to and including 2020's Heavy Light, a Pitchfork Best New Music designee. She's a perfect fit for a tribute to and conversation about Yoko Ono, since she's not only a huge fan, but clearly influenced by Ono's sonic and political fearlessness. Here's a little bit of U.S. Girls' take on Yoko Ono's Born in a Prison. Before they get to chatting Yoko, Gibbard and Remy talk about COVID. There were some positives in it for Remy, who also gave birth to twins recently. Then it's on to Yoko, whom they both deeply admire. They talk about her records, her art, and how the recent Get Back documentary kind of exploded the narrative on her vis-a-vis the Beatles. It's a great chat about a worthy, misunderstood subject. Enjoy. So, Meg, I'm assuming this is the first time that we have met, correct? In our musical travels, we have never crossed paths, as far as I know. Not that I know of. Do we have mutual friends? I'm sure. Because you you lived in Portland for some time. (laughs) Is that where you are? No, I'm in Seattle. Okay. Yeah, I lived in Portland for four years, 2003 to seven. So I'm sure there's got to be one person in there that we know. It's, yeah, it's, it's too small of a musical <laughs> scene to not have at least some crossover. Mm-hmm. You're in Toronto, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I've been here for like over 10 years now. And how has the last couple of years been up there in relation to the pandemic and everything? Has it felt a little less crazy than, than what we're dealing with down here? I mean, in terms of my personal life, and it's been really fruitful. I um, needed a break from the road, a forced break. And I was in the process of writing a book, so I was able to really focus on that project instead of trying to write it in the van, which would never have happened. And I had 
I had twins. I had two kids at once. Wow. So <laughs> I, I, I saw that I, I saw that as, as I was kind of doing prepping a little bit for this mm-hmm. and I was like, holy shit, that Yeah. That feels always strange to say. Like COVID's been really great for me. Mm-hmm. But um there's always multiple angles to every situation, you know. I always just try to make the best out of anything that's thrown at me because there's no control. So <laughs> Yeah. I have to say, especially in 2020, it was a pretty terrifying and uh, unsettling time. But I remember having a conversation with my wife in the weeks leading up to COVID being a thing. The band had a bunch of stuff booked and I had some solo stuff booked and we were already talking about trying to start another record. And I remember telling her like, God, it would be nice if I could just get a year off of this, but I can't get a year off. And, you know, kind of like famous last words, right? I mean, I, I think initially... I was kind of paralyzed with fear and anxiety, but after I realized that this was going to be a while, I settled into kind of a nice kind of creative period. I had just put out a record and we had a ton of touring and it was when it was finally canceled, the decision was made, you know, this isn't happening. My husband was like, oh, you got your wish. So I would always be like, I wish the world would just stop for like just a month and we could, you know, you didn't have to do anything. There was no thing. And I've heard that from a few people. And that doesn't mean like, I really enjoy what I do, but I think it hints at something that where maybe some changes could be made to that pushing too hard thing that really seems to happen in music, which is just like, yeah, I'll eat from a gas station for nine months out of the year. No problem. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) I mean, I, I think for anybody watching or listening to this, I, you know, Please understand, I think both Meg and I recognize that we live a very privileged life, that we get to make art for a living, and that's not lost on either of us, I would assume, right? Yeah. But but I do think that there is this cycle that we get in, specifically touring musicians, where when when we first started doing this and every tour was kind of an adventure and you were going to places you'd never gone before, it had this sense of being like a a respite from regular life for me. Mm -hmm. And then as it became, you know, and I'm very grateful for this, like my job every album tour cycle followed a lot of the same patterns and you'd finish yeah. one and be like, Oh, that was so we did it guys. And then six months later, like, wait, we're doing it again. <laughs> well, anytime that a person starts having to act like a machine, you know, whether that's as an artist where it becomes machine like, or you work in a factory running a machine, I think it can become, although our way of life has a privilege, I still think that there's also a twisted <laughs> nature to it as well. So our industry has changed so dramatically in the 25 years that I've been doing it, where touring has become for most bands and artists, the sole source of revenue yeah, uh, or the largest source of revenue. So, you know, tours have gotten longer out for longer periods of time, longer time between records. But I love playing shows and I love writing songs and making records. But it seems like up until COVID, the period of the touring, the promotion of the records was getting longer than the creation of the actual product. I think there's moments, and certainly in my creative kind of career, that that has, the albums have suffered because we've been on the road so much. Because I can't write on the road. Can you, are you able to work on music on tour at all? Uh, I think mostly just lyric, you know, writing, which leads to lyrics, but not like sitting and making a song in a hotel room, not that kind of thing, no. I've often like thought that would be really romantic to be able to yeah. just be in a hotel with a pad, you know, the hotel pad. It's like, you know, the lyrics are just like Dylan yeah. or something like that. I love those notepads. <laughs> They're good for a grocery list. <laughs> I always take them and the pens, anything free, you know, got to take it. Got to take it where you can, you know. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I wanted to thank you so much for contributing a track to this compilation that we were putting together. Your version of Born in Prison is is beautiful, and I'm, it's it's just such a beautiful pastoral kind of version of that song. And I'm curious when you were first made aware of her as a musician, as a songwriter, and and, and what your impressions were. I can't pinpoint exactly when it. You know, I found out that Yoko was a musician and an artist, not just an image, not this hair. You know, like I was obsessed with the Beatles growing up and was a kid when the anthology came out and all of that and had all the CDs and the book and all the things. But she was always just this kind of image to me that I really was drawn to without knowing why. I can't really remember now a time not knowing about her and yeah. like going to her. You know, we've had grapefruit, the book in our bathroom as long as I've lived in Toronto. And that's not saying it's a bathroom book. It's like that book is very much a source that you can turn to at any point in your life looking for guidance. It's a little bit like feels like looking up your horoscope at times. Mm-hmm. But no words can express how I feel about her as an artist and what she means knowing about her and having access to her work, what it's meant for me. And Born in a Prison was a song that just kind of opened up this idea to me about the idea of criminals, mm-hmm. you know, which was something that was kind of already, I think I was thinking about, but I wasn't able to put into words this idea that, you know, we say some people are criminals and others aren't. And people literally getting locked away for their lives. But yet, because we do that and we agree to do that as a culture, as a society, as a world, it in turn places us in this prison, you know, a separate prison. So that song was, it really got me going on her. After kind of getting into that record is when I got into Approximate Infinite Universe and like, learning about not that she was making music, not just as these kind of messagey songs, you know, but like stuff that sound like can, you know what I mean? Like yeah. hardcore cocaine, not, I don't know if cocaine, but like that sound like New York, crazy speed, like that record just, and I found out about that record living in Toronto because I remember there was this woman, Annika. I don't know if you remember her. Stone's Throw put out a record of hers and she covered Yang Yang. Oh, okay. It's a good version. And then it's just like, so it's like, okay, Yoko is like, she's not just this kind of caricature of the 60s. That's like this long hair and piece and like messages, very surface political messages almost. It was like, okay, no, she's like, she's an improviser. She's like hardcore rock blues. <laughs> like, And then, then you're like, okay, then, but then she was part of Fluxus and she's like around, she's like that person that you kind of maybe is like in your scene that you find out was like at something 30 years ago that you learned about in school. You know what I mean? You're like, wait, what? You were there. And then she's this thing that predates the Beatles. <laughs> That like was necessary for the Beatles to then become what the Beatles became. And then the Beatles becoming what the Beatles became like is part of you and I becoming what we, what we do with our lives, what we've become. Like it's very, she's a complex topic. Yeah. And I, (laughs) 
100%. And I think that you're, I'm glad that you kind of uh, pointed out her work in Fluxus before she was even in the Beatles kind of radar universe, whatever. Because I think one thing that people in general don't understand about Yoko as an artist is that she was very active and respected long before, you know, John Lennon walked into a gallery yeah. of her work. And, yeah. you know, I think as an advocate for her, specifically with this project, I found it was really important to kind of try to help in whatever small way that we could grab a hold of the narrative of like, this person wasn't an appendage mm-hmm. to a famous man. Yeah, This person was an established artist in their own right long before they were together. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of coming across that record sometime in New York City that has Born yeah. in a Prison on it. And that, I was just thinking as you were talking, that's such an interesting and odd entry point into Yoko's music <laughs> for a number of reasons. But because, number one, because that record is such an outlier in the entire Lennon solo yeah. kind of canon, as well as Yoko's work, where if you just drop somebody into that record and said, this is what their music is about, you'd be like, it's super political. It's yeah. it's really like punk in this way and yeah. very much an outlier in relation to everything else. But yeah, Approximate Infinite Universe was also kind of a, a huge record for me in the development of my fandom, fandom of Yoko because I was just totally shocked that you'd be allowed yeah. to make a record that has these incredibly spaced out psych rock jams and also some of the, the greatest pop songs you've ever heard and also these yeah. incredibly introspective moments. It's just a beautiful, sprawling piece of work that defies any kind of specific category. Well, and I want to say something in relation to what you were saying about wanting to advocate for her narrative, which I totally see that. What's interesting about that is that she doesn't need you to do that or us to do that. People need this because it's like they're missing out. You know, like I just, you know, and I think like that's obviously been changing and it seems like it's been given a huge push by all this get back, you know, the all this stuff that's come out recently where it's like, you can see what's going on here. But I don't think that narrative can ever leave her because of the fact that what she does is high art and it's conceptual and it's complex and that like, I think anyone can understand it, but it was like, they would need to be sat down and there would need to be like a one-on-one conversation with like a, a back history of other art movements and people to understand. Because I just think that there'll always be people that are just like, she's weird. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, that's not for me or something. And it's like, it's so, I think it's interesting too, as well, her earlier work in relation to what the Beatles were doing at the same time, which is like, they're basically like the Backstreet Boys. I mean, and I love the, I love the Backstreet Boys, but like they're the Backstreet Boys while she's like at the, she's a, the high art, like, I don't know what her, she's like Dali, you know what I mean? Like while they're being Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Like like that's a really good way of putting it. Like at the, at the time the, the Beatles were singing, I want to hold your hand. She was sitting silently and have people cutting her clothes off on stage. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've, we've all been exp- experienced this in our own ways. People have been too cool for school around in certain art circles. Like there's, I, you couldn't imagine a world in which an artist of that caliber and, and kind of discipline would ever be with like a Backstreet Boy. You know what I mean? Like it would be like Marie Ambrovich being with like 
like yeah. Justin, Justin Timberlake. Bieber. Like, yeah, Justin Bieber. <laughs> yeah, with like Justin Bieber. That's what it would be like, which would be fucking incredible in its own way. They and I would love to see up. that. They, they should, should totally hook up. up. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely defies uh, logic at that point, for sure. Everything should defy logic. There is no logic. You know what I mean? We should always be seeking out everyone's narratives and always giving someone the benefit of the doubt, even if they're making this really weird art, really weird work, or really straight, whatever word you want to use, seeming very bubblegum, mainstream, overculture, whatever you want to call it, work. Because you don't know what's in within either of those things and like yeah. what that person is, you know, like I know some people that are some of the most out people I've ever known that make pretty, you know, like tame, if you want to say stuff that my mom would, would be like, I like this, <laughs> you know, like you just can't judge work by its cover almost as well. Not just the person, not whatever, like, Things are just infinitely more complex. And I think you can just say that about anything. And Yoko's a very good example of that for this day and age that we live in as well. Where I think like there's a lot of people, you know, you want to talk about someone being canceled for something. They become the thing that they're canceled for rather than a human being that's had a life that was born, that things happened to them, that they went here, they went there, this and then the event or events occurred. You know, it's a very narrowing down. Well, we have culturally decided that situational nuance should just be thrown out the window. Yeah, and of course, there are certain discretions, indiscretions that okay. there is no situational nuance for. But sure. for a lot of things, there are. I think that one thing about Yoko's music that's been frustrating for me, not the music itself, but the conversation surrounding it is that, you know, people like you and I who are musicians and artists and who probably collect a lot of weird records and listen to things that are kind of left to center. This music resonates with us and we're open to it and we're open to the idea of it. But I think one thing that's been frustrating in the conversations I'd have with people about her music is that I can't think of another artist that people have such strong opinions about, but of which they know so little about. Yeah. And there have been so many conversations that I've had with people who honestly should probably know better yeah. about her music and it's very clear that they they're incredibly ignorant to it but they have decided because they heard five seconds of guttural noise in yeah. an avant-garde piece that oh i know i get it i mean that would be like hearing like five seconds of like the high note in a led zeppelin song be like yeah i get led zeppelin so i don't need to listen to any more of that yeah and it's been a constant kind of forge for me and some friends of mine who are into her music to try mm. to not even recontextualize or just give it a, a any kind of proper context. Like I was talking to somebody, you know, doing an interview about this record recently. And, you know, the journalist was like, well, you know, do you think it's, we're in a ripe time for like a reevaluation of Yoko's music? And I answered that, no, I don't think we're in a place to reevaluate. We need to just evaluate it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it hasn't been even available for most people until very recently. For sure. And there's records of her, like, I don't know if you know, it's all right that record that's like that's not even on spotify you know it's like why is that record not up there maybe that's her choice i don't know but like people i know that love yoko don't know that record and it's so wild when you're talking about someone hearing five seconds of guttural noise and then being like i'm done with this that too shows you that like you know the beatles maybe use guttural noise but only for five seconds because they're like we gotta sell this Right. As you see with Get Back, where it's like the bottom line is 
always in the conversation there, I found, where I think Yoko is, and I've learned a lot from that, whether it's accurate or not, but how I've perceived her and her body of work is that she made it for herself pretty much. And because she had to, and because she's on this search within herself and within technology and music and like collaboration. And when you're making things for yourself, I think that is often, I don't like the word triggering, but I think it's triggering for people that consume it because it's like, oh, I, some, I can, they can, like you sense this person's living their life for themselves and that's scary. It's a scary thing to think about if, because you're, when you're faced with somebody who is living their life that way, it, it really just kind of highlights that you are not. Yes. And that's why people are like, oh, I hate that or fuck that. And you know, that's, that's also a completely acceptable way to live one's life, but, For it's, sure. but, but it's very clear the people who have the strongest reactions to someone like Yoko are the ones who are clearly want to be doing that. You know, that they yeah. doff the test too much. I know. know. <laughs> they are the ones who, who are the most upset about it. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. I kind of got into her music maybe 20 years ago. I was like record shopping and I came across one of her records. It was feeling the space mm -hmm. and it was like in the, I was like, it must've been shopping for like OMD or something like that. And like, Oh, Oh no. Okay. And it was like 10 bucks. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance on this. And I took this record home and put it on. And I was just like doing other stuff and put it on the turntable. And then like what was coming out was not in any way what I thought it was going to be. It just completely defied my expectations. And as I got into more of her records, to your point about fearlessness and living your life for yourself, it was very clear that that she, <laughs> there was no, well, yeah, why would I not have a 12 minute experimental piece? And then like a two minute pop song. Yeah. Why can't you do that? And it's like, well, you can't do that because that's not how it's done. <laughs> it's like, well, that's how I'm doing it. Yeah. Or that won't sell. You know, I think that focusing on what will sell or like a lot of artists who have like, you know, a team around them 
that are interjecting about the work. That's problematic for a lot of reasons, but a main one is that I think that it often underestimates the audience. Why would we not want to challenge the audience? Why would you not want to do something fresh for the people that you are going to be coming to check you out that are fans, that are paying money, that they, you know, hard-earned money for your record or to come to your show? Like, And so to underestimate one's audience, I think, can be disrespectful in a way. Yeah. And I think also there's, you know, specifically with that record, Feeling the Space, which was my introduction to her music away from the five second clips that you'd see places. It's only really struck me in recent years, like what an incredibly fearless uh, position it was to take to be like, yeah, um, the the rock landscape in 1973 is like, you know, Led Zeppelin and, you know, like, AM radio rock and kind of shitty prog and, you know, and not, there aren't a lot of women kind of in making music. I, mean, I know there are women making music, but there are not a lot of women on the radio at that point. Mm-hmm. I think the record I'm going to make is going to deal with my Asian identity and feminist themes. That's yeah. the music I'm going to make. And it's like, it's fucking incredible to think yeah. about this record, which you put this record on now and it's it seems contemporary because of the style in which it's written and the subject matter and everything like that. Yeah. But we're talking like 50 years ago, this was the approach that she took with this album. Yeah. And it's only really kind of hit me in recent years, like what an incredibly unique and brave series of choices that was. For sure. and But it seems that she was really able to make them because of it seems like she has a really good relationship to death. She doesn't shy away from it. Like from what I know of her childhood and the war and stuff, like she was faced with it and then she had funds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. she wasn't, uh, Oh, please record label, put my record out. She had the funds and she used them to good ends. I mean, I don't think she could have operated any different way because of who she seems to be, but you know, she was able to do what she was able to do due to having access to money and beetle power. And that is a privilege that I think like is huge because so many people that want to make the music that they want to make, want to make out music. They can't. I mean, now you can because you can put it up on Bandcamp or something, but you're most likely not going to get to have a 60, 70 year year long career. Well, that's, yeah, that's a really excellent point. Thinking of some of like the biggest pop stars or recording artists, whatever, the past 50 years, I'm having a difficult time thinking of one off the top of my head that once they achieved a level of notoriety or success or fame, then then said, you know what, I'm going to make the really fucked up stuff now. Like I'm going to go, I'm going to go out of my way and make some really wild shit it becomes more like, you know, no, we need another song like the hit from the last record. And, you know, you see some pop stars kind of like maybe Miley Cyrus will like moonlight with the flaming lips or something like that. But that's not the main thing. You know, that's not no. that's not the main output. And that comes back around to what I'm saying about when artists start to act like the art becomes a machine. You know, it doesn't something is off there. I don't know any pop stars. I only see the what I'm allowed to see, you know, that is presented, was chosen in a room for me to see. But I'm sure that there's lots of them that have wild, amazing ideas that they'd like to achieve. But when you have a group of people around you that each get a percentage and want to continue getting that percentage, 
And you also were surrounded by rhetoric of like, we live in scarcity, you know, where it's like, okay, you got to this spot. You better stay there because someone else is waiting right behind you and will take it. And you got to cooperate. And there is something that I think is very interesting with Yoko. I don't think that she's ever cooperated with the kind of truth, which is that entertainers are the lubrication for capitalism, whatever you want to call the thing that we're all critiquing right now that we're stuck in, that we're trying to get out of that has completely, you know, poisoned the planet. I don't think that she's cooperated. She's cooperated in the sense of that she's very wealthy, (laughs) I assume, but she has not agreed to be that lubrication. And I think that's another reason why she has a complicated narrative and there are people that are just like, she's not for me. I don't feel like the industry celebrates her. Oh, not at all. Until this, you know, doing this comp is something that's, because she's dangerous to celebrate, I think. Well, and she also flies in the face of the very tired narrative that, you know, artists make their best work when they're starving. And then yeah. once, once they kind of achieve even like a small modicum of stability, then they start to get soft or make things that are kind of less challenging. And in this case, it's like, no, that's the exact opposite. This person, <laughs> yeah. this person uh, you know, yeah. fell in love with somebody who was uh, very wealthy. And instead of being like, well, that's great. Now I'm just going to sit back and either not do it at all, or I'm going to just make things that are kind of soft, went the exact opposite direction and utilized Apple's budget to make some really wild records, you know? And I've often thought that's just, that's just one of the wonderful things about her and, and also kind of starts to kind of pull apart that narrative that people have about the starving artists, which, you know, of course people make, you know, some great records when they're, you know, in their basement, but they also make great records when they're, I mean, Pink Floyd <laughs> made Piper the Gates of Dawn. They also made Dark Side of the Moon. They're both yeah, great. Yeah, I love them both. This was so wild watching Get Back, which I just like loved. I, I, I could have like a TV on that just played that 24 hours a day in my house and just check in with it. 100%. It was just everything about it, but watching it and how they wear a different outfit every day, <laughs> just like, they have a different outfit. And a friend of mine pointed out to me that to me was what signaled to me that it was a movie, you know, like this is a movie. This isn't a document. It, you know, it's, it is a documentary, but all documentaries are suffer from being a documentary. It can't be real life. It can't be exact. There's no way of capturing what's actually going on without influencing it. You know, even just us perceiving each other right now, you know, because this is being recorded, we're probably acting a little bit different than we would if we were just sitting upstairs in my house listening to Yoko Records talking, you know? Oh, sure, because we're having this conversation for the benefit of other people that are not yeah. just two of us. So that's so apparent in Get Back. But like, the it was the outfits that really signaled to me. I know some snazzy people, but I still see them wear the same thing one time. Like, right, right. maybe the same shoes or something. I mentioned that to a friend and he said, yeah, do you remember when John and Yoko showed up late? They had stayed up all late and they came and they wore the same outfits from the day before. And George saw him and said, great, now we're all going to look insane. (laughs) (laughs) Because they, you know, they came with their new outfits for the day or whatever. And John and Yoko were still wearing what they had worn the previous day of filming and that really just brought it all back to me too and like 
that for years there's been that narrative of like, yeah, Yoko was just sitting. She came to all the rehearsals and she's just sitting there basically on John Lennon's lap. Like, no, this is a movie and Yoko is an artist and she's also a performance artist. So this is a performance. I also, I loved Get Back. And as I wish that we lived in a world where we could talk about Yoko without the Beatles. But having said that, I think that the timing of that documentary coming out could not have been better as it pertains to this project that we're both a part of. Yeah, of course. Because you see so many of the narratives that we have hung on to collectively for 50 some years were completely destroyed in the course of the six or seven hours of that documentary. For sure. And one, it's clear that the Beatles, they they kind of liked her, you know, like, you know, it's like they, they, you know, it's like they number, you know, not only there's those good, that great scene where, uh, Paul's playing drums. And, oh my God. And John's playing yeah. guitar and Yoko's singing. And it's just, and like, you look at Paul and he's just loving it. Like he's having loving a great time. And, yeah. and all every, every time that Paul gets a chance to talk about Yoko, he's also, he's always so affectionate and yeah. kind. Yeah. And then the, the second, you know, we've been fed this narrative our entire lives that, Yoko was just around, man. She was always just sitting there. And you're like, yeah, the first thing we see is some Krishnas in the corner. Like, <laughs> sitting. Just sitting. Like, like if I showed up band practice, like, oh, yeah, I got four Krishnas with me. They're just going to sit here. Yeah. Or, But also the fact that, like, Linda was around. Children yeah. were coming around. Yeah. Friends, business managers. Yeah. Like, you know, Peter Sellers shows up. Yes, like, yes, people are just yes. showing up all the time. So yeah. the idea that these were four, you know, insular men yeah. who needed you know the that lived without could only could not be distracted from the brilliance of their work is like a false narrative we've, that we've all heaved on them well because to become a commodity you have to be a closed loop you can't be like i'm selling this but then there's something hanging off down here that i'm also it, you have to yeah so the beatles had to become these geniuses these things but i really think that that narrative like when i reflect on it especially after watching Get Back, I think that a big part of that is back in the day, it was to try to get women to not make music, honestly. <laughs> like, you know, like, right. no, just don't. It's like, don't do it because this might happen to you where you're going to become like the villain or you're just going to get just shredded or made fun of or, you know, and that's like, that, yeah, it hurts me to think about it. What she represents is the exact opposite, you know? It's just like, make things. Anyone make things. Do it. Go out. Like, you you breathing is making something, I feel like, is the perspective I get from her when I consume, particularly her, her written work, is that existing is is doing something. Yeah, and Yoko seems to be one of those people who I, in a way, I'm in awe of, but also in a way somewhat envy, which is that everything they're doing is art all the time. Yeah. Like I write songs, I'm in a band, you know, the term artist could be used and is used when you're talking about recording artists. Like I'm a recording artist, Yeah. but there are musicians and songwriters and people who do what we do. And then I feel that there are artists, people who they wake up and they are just creating. Yeah. It seems like there's never a moment in which of the day in which they're not creating. And one of the many things I'm in so in awe of as it pertains to Yoko Ono is that she just kind of worked in so many different disciplines throughout her career and was great at all of them. And I think that so much her greatness has so much to do with her confidence and her utter dismissal of anybody who said that she couldn't do it or shouldn't do it. Yeah, and her confidence that I think she readily expresses is fragile. 
you know, and complex. It's not like this steel thing. I think it, she's just, she's extremely human, which is what I want from the artists that I consume. It's so that, yes, I can be in awe of that everything you do is, is art, but that you're going to always let me know that you also sit on the toilet the way I do every day. You know what I mean? Like there's a little something in there. So it's like, I, I don't have to feel bad about myself that I take a shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that I haven't yes, I been able, I haven't been able to eliminate that and be the ultimate artist, pristine. I think so much of being a songwriter, a musician, artist, whatever is, you know, there is this kind of fantastical narrative that we all kind of believe about the greatest artists of our time, times in that, like, they just exist and these things kind of come out of the ether to them. And I, I had this realization years ago, thinking about David Bowie, for example. And I was like, David Bowie sits in a room the way you and I sit in a room in front of an instrument with nothing and conjure something. And that's in no way to equate the music that I make with David Bowie's or anything no, like that. No. But yeah. just that like there is a relatability amongst anybody who's creating anything. And to your point, Yoko has completely dismantled this idea that artists are superhuman or that they're more important than anybody else. And also that anybody can be one, anybody yeah. with any kind of creative idea that, you know, applies themselves to that idea can be an artist. For sure. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, good thing we got yoga. Well, Yoko. <laughs> well, Meg, this was so fun. I'm so glad we yeah. got to meet even in, it feels like I'm meeting so many people in these virtual spaces these days. Yeah. I wish we could be in the same room doing this, but yeah. hopefully we will be allowed into Canada at some point or you will be able to get down here for tour and we can uh, continue this conversation in person. I'm sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast and thanks to Meg Remy and Ben Gibbard for chatting. If you like what you heard, check out Ocean Child. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please follow, like, and rate Talk House on your favorite podcasting platform. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.